Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. In previous episodes in this series, we have begun exploring the fascinating world of the Islamicate occult sciences. We have been given an introduction to the topic. We have explored the world of talismanic magic. We have looked into astrology in the early Islamic world. And we will eventually also dive into books like the famous Rayat al-Hakim or the Picatrix in its Latin title. But the most famous, or should I say infamous, book of occult sciences in the history of the Islamicate and Arabic-speaking world is probably the mysterious work entitled the Shams al-Ma'arif, or the Sun of Knowledge. A book that is revered by some as a useful book for spiritual practices and esotericism, but by others it is feared as the most dangerous book in the world, a cursed book that just owning a copy of this book will bring on evil forces or jinn that will mess up your life. So what is this book, who wrote it, and what kind of things do we find in it? 
The Shams al-Ma'arif is probably the most famous occult book in all of the Arab and Islamic world. It is a big text, and indeed it is a kind of encyclopedia of all kinds of occult practices that have been common in the Islamic world historically. It covers everything from talismans and amulets to how to construct them, uh, theories of the science of Arabic letters and their magical powers, magic squares, how to summon jinn, and much else. The book is attributed to the 13th century figure Ahmed al-Buni, often popularly described as a magician and as the source for much of these sciences. But when we explore this figure and the history of the text itself, we find that things are a bit different from how they are usually portrayed. Little is known about Ahmed al-Buni's life. His full name seems to have been Abu al-Abbas Ahmed ibn Ali ibn Yusuf al-Qurayshi al-Buni, and he probably lived from the late 12th century to the mid-13th, although his year of death is disputed, as we will see. The name, or Nisbah al-Buni, suggests that he originated from the city Buna, which is in modern-day Algeria. And the sources we have indicate the same thing, that he came from and spent most of his life in North Africa. He is primarily associated with Egypt, after all. This places him in a very interesting and significant time and place. He was a contemporary of the very famous Sufi figure Muhyiddin ibn Arabi and came from roughly the same region. Indeed, al-Buni was a Sufi, and he was known throughout his life primarily as a Sufi teacher and not as anything like a magician or something like that. Furthermore, in one of his writings, al-Buni says that one of his own Sufi sheikhs or masters was Abdulaziz al-Mahdawi, who led a Sufi center in the city of Tunis, and who was also one of the primary masters of Ibn Arabi, further connecting the two figures. This becomes even more interesting as we find many similarities between the teachings of Ibn Arabi and al-Buni, like the theories about the science of letters and certain cosmological and metaphysical principles. And this is important. We should look at Ahmad al-Buni as a Sufi master, who came specifically from the heavily speculative Sufi culture of the Maghrib, which is western North Africa and Al-Andalus. This region was ripe with Sufism, but it was a Sufism that was to generalize, more theoretical, more concerned with metaphysical and cosmological speculation on top of these spiritual practices and psychological transformations associated with Sufism, more so in the East, you could say. This is an environment that brought great mystics with a speculative, philosophical, quote-unquote, bent, like Ibn Arabi, Ibn Sabain, Ibn Barajan, and indeed Ahmed al-Buni himself. And we do in fact find many similar ideas in these writers. Because, importantly, all sources indicate that Ahmad al-Buni later in his life became seen particularly as a great and revered Sufi teacher and master who led a group of disciples or students primarily in Cairo, Egypt. They would have performed all the practices associated with Sufism, such as dhikr, remembrance, and khalwa, spiritual retreats, and most of al-Buni's writings attest to this very strong Sufi connection and the fact that he was a spiritual master to several students. Even after his death, which is sometimes said to have been in the year 1225, but other times we see the years 1231 or 1232, nonetheless, after his death, his tomb became a place of pilgrimage, which shows us the kind of status he had as a Sufi teacher, and that he was maybe even seen as a kind of saint or wali. Ahmed al-Buni also left behind writings, which have collectively come to be called the Corpus Bunianum by academics. 
and it is here that we find those occult and esoteric aspects that he has become so strongly associated with. Now, most of Alboni's writings are simply books on Sufism, similar to many other books from that tradition, talking about the stages of the Sufi path, practices like dhikr and khalwa, as well as the powers of reciting the divine names. Even books that are more quote-unquote occult or magical, which do exist, are all essentially within a Sufi framework, specifically speculative Sufi traditions associated with the Islamic West, as we saw. The problem with these writings, at least in relation to the subject of this episode, is that none of them are the Shams al-Ma'arif, at least not as we know it. Recent scholarship by people like Noah Gardner and John Charles Coulomb have studied the Bunyan corpus and its relationship with the popular Shams al-Ma'arif and suggest that around five works attributed to al-Buni can with some certainty be considered to be his authentic work. These include works of a more traditional Sufi nature, such as the Ilm al-Huda wa Asrar al-Ihdida fi Shar Asma Allah al-Husna, a commentary on the names of God. There is the Mawaqif al-Ghayat fi Asrar al-Riyadat, and the Hidayat al-Qasidin wa Nihayat al-Wasilin. But Al-Buni's writings also include books that are decidedly more occult, and which deals with topics that are associated with things like esotericism and maybe even that controversial word magic, which of course Albuni himself would not have used as a name for what he was doing. These are primarily the Lata'if al-Isharat fil Huruf al-Ulwiyat, the subtleties of the science on the celestial letters, and indeed, and this is where it gets interesting, a work entitled the Shams al-Ma'arif wa Lata'if al-Awarif, that most famous book whose title translates to something like The Sun of Knowledge and the Subtleties of Elevated Things, more often known simply under the shorter title Shams al-Ma'arif, The Sun of Knowledge. So Ahmed al-Buni did write a book called the Shams al-Ma'arif, and according to certain medieval sources, it seems that this might have been his most famous and widespread work. The problem is, this is not the Shams al-Ma'arif that we have today. Indeed, they differ in some dramatic ways, actually. The Shams al-Ma'arif, as we know it today, and which is so famous or infamous around the world, is a large text that is often seen as a cursed book, as the most dangerous book in the world. And for those of you out there that take that stuff seriously, you should know that I will be quoting from this book um, in an English translation, so not the original Arabic, but in an English translation. It will be pretty clear when I am quoting from it, but uh, that's my warning to you. Al-Buni's Shams al-Ma'arif is definitely a work including descriptions of practical occult sciences. Indeed, Al-Buni himself writes in the introduction that the book contains, and here I'm quoting, quote, Secrets of the wielding of occult powers and the knowledge of hidden forces. So what is in this book? Well, at the center of Ahmed al-Buni's Shams al-Ma'arif, and really at the center of most of his writings, at least the occult writings, is the theories and speculation around what is known as the science of letters, the ilm al-huruf. This is an idea that we find in many medieval mystics, especially at this time, which uh, theorizes that the Arabic letters, so the letters of the Arabic alphabet, have magical occult powers that can be employed. Different letters are often connected with certain cosmological or metaphysical principles. One letter might be connected with the throne of God, the Arsh, for example, or with the planetary spheres. 
And since they have these connections, and especially since it is these letters that make up the names of God, which have enormous powers in themselves, they can be used in various ways for spiritual practices or when making talismans, for instance. Ibn Arabi, who held very similar ideas, even went so far as to say that the entire universe is essentially made up of letters and words that God speaks in the eternal moment of creation. So the Shams al-Ma'arif talks about this science of letters and some of the practical uses of these powers. The book also talks about jinn, the names of jinn who were captured by the prophet Solomon. It talks about angels and their natures, as well as more practical instructions on how to construct what is known as awfaq, or cryptograms. This is essentially using letters and numbers to create symbols that have certain powers. The most prominent example of this is the so-called magic squares, which are well, squares of numbers in different rows that add up to the same number, regardless of which way you add the numbers up. They always add up to the same number. That's the principle. And even though Albuni never uses words like talisman or amulet, or that is the Arabic equivalent of those words, he essentially gives us instructions on how to create such objects using these cryptograms, letters, divine names, and Quranic verses. Remember, Al-Buni was a Sufi, and theories regarding these things appear to have been rather common in esoteric Sufi circles, as we saw with Ibn Arabi, for example, and in certain circles of Shi'ism as well. It wouldn't have been weird for a Sufi master at this time to be involved with these kinds of things, especially in the Maghreb or North Africa, as we saw. Al-Buni and his followers did not consider any of this to be sihr or magic, a word that has very controversial and negative connotations in the Islamic world, even if there have been nuances and different usages of that word, as we saw in previous episodes. But a pious person like Al-Buni would not have seen himself as being involved with quote-unquote magic. People have used other words like ruhaniya, spiritual work, basically, to denote these licit practices that to us certainly appear magic-adjacent, but which to them was obviously very different. Using the divine powers of God to affect things in the world is very different from calling upon jinn or forces other than God. Nonetheless, this was considered esoteric stuff. It was something that was taught in Sufi circles, but was certainly not disclosed to the uninitiated. If anything, that is what makes Al-Buni and his writings unique, that he actually wrote about this stuff. Stuff that really only was taught orally from teacher to student in a sort of initiatory context. But even then, he makes it clear that these writings are only meant for the elite Sufi audience who can grasp its meanings, as he says in the introduction, and here I'm quoting again, quote, Shame unto anyone who has this book of mine in hand and reveals it to a stranger, divulging it to one who is not worthy of it. This was a book that was clearly meant for his students and for the spiritually adept and not to be spread to the wider public. So how did Ahmed al-Buni and the Shams al-Ma'arif get the infamous reputation that they have today? And what about the modern Shams al-Ma'arif that we all know and love in the contemporary world? Well, aside from being a Sufi teacher or master, as we saw, Al-Buni, after his death, did become known as a kind of authority on occult sciences and occult matters, probably because he wrote these books on these topics, which was relatively uncommon, as they would be spread orally most of the time. And, and so because these writings uh, were attributed to Al-Buni, after his death, he did become seen as a kind of authority on occult sciences. 
It doesn't seem like this stuff was rejected or seen as radically suspect by most people or scholars, as his writings appear to have been rather popular among a wide array of people. Religious scholars and other figures associated with political leadership and the aristocracy, mystics and philosophers, etc. They all read this book and it was quite popular. We see the relationship between Al-Buni and Ibn Arabi continuing in these contexts, as it seems like people would read the works of the two side by side. It was often thought that Ibn Arabi provided the theoretical and metaphysical side of the science of letters, while Al-Buni's writings provided the practical descriptions on how to actually use them. We do have critical voices like Ibn Taymiyyah and Ibn Khaldun, who both lump together Ibn Arabi and Al-Buni as quote-unquote extremist Sufis, and equated things like the science of letters with seher or magic in an attempt to outlaw it and its practitioners. These two are perhaps the most prominent critics of the popular forms of occult sciences in the Middle Ages, but even though these figures are often upheld today as representatives of Islamic civilization and its intellectual tradition, they did not represent the majority at the time, and the writings of Al-Buni continued to be popular in various circles. People studied his works, wrote commentaries on them, and they developed a kind of Bunian occult tradition over the 14th to 16th centuries. And this is where we get to the real Shams al-Ma'arif. Research has shown that the Shams al-Ma'arif as we know it today, which is often known as the Shams al-Ma'arif al-Kubra, the great son of knowledge, the version that is printed and spread around and considered so dangerous, first appears in the 17th century and its contents are radically different from the medieval Shams al-Ma'arif actually traceable to Ahmed al-Buni himself. So what's going on here? What is this book? The scholarly consensus today is that even though it is attributed to al-Buni, the Shams al-Ma'arif al-Kubra is a compilation created by one or multiple writers around the early 17th century. Now, the book is based on al-Buni's writings, for sure. Indeed, there seems to be a core portion of the text that actually comes directly from Al-Buni's different occult writings, including of course the original Shams al-Ma'arif, but a large part of the work, probably the majority of the work, is from elsewhere, probably from later writings by a figure in that what we call the Bunian tradition that had developed over the centuries, right? For example, a lot, maybe most, of the non-Bunian parts of the Shams seem to be from the figure Abdurrahman al-Bistami, one of the major commentators on al-Buni's works and a famous occultist himself. So the modern Shams al-Ma'arif is indeed a kind of encyclopedic work. It is a compilation of different writings from various authors. There is a core aspect of the book that might be traceable to Ahmed al-Buni himself, but a lot of it, perhaps the majority of it, is interpolations from later writers. And it is, after all, this modern text that is the most famous. It is this text that is spread around, printed in different versions, and that has this incredibly infamous reputation of being like the most dangerous book in the world, for example. And so for that reason, it is, of course, this version of the book that will be the main focus of our discussion today. So what is in the Shams al-Ma'arif al-Kubra? It is a large text, one that features many chapters and sections dedicated to all kinds of occult sciences. It is often called a grimoire or a book of magic, and that label isn't entirely wrong, of course, but calling it that also neglects some of the core features of the text. Indeed, most of it remains within a strong speculative Sufi framework. 
The Shams has a complex and intricate cosmology where everything is connected to everything else, a framework in which all of the so-called magical aspects figure. Now, the book isn't always terribly consistent in its ideas, which is one of the main reasons we can be sure that it is a compilation, but nonetheless there is an intricate system of threads where everything from the divine names, the letters that make them up, the stars and heavenly spheres, the human soul and every other aspect is a part. When you read the book, you will find sections about the powers of the Arabic letters, how the 28 letters of the Arabic alphabet are connected to the 28 mansions of the moon, as well as specific planetary spheres. This is all connected to the four elements, the signs of the zodiac, different angels, and much else. It is really esoteric stuff where, as we've said, everything has a correspondence to everything else. Numbers also play a major role, especially in the construction of talismans and magical objects, instructions for which can be found in the text. Especially in the form of gematria, the common idea that each letter of the alphabet corresponds to a certain number. So the letter Aleph corresponds to 1, the letter Ba corresponds to 2, Jim corresponds to 3, Dal corresponds to 4, and so on. And when you write out words using these letters, the word as a whole has a numerical value too, where the numbers of the letters are added up, which leads to some really juicy esoteric stuff. These connections and correspondences become central when you are, for example, making a talisman. These can take many forms, but often involve invocations or magic squares. So for example, to harness the power of Jupiter, which has a kind of protective and fortunate quality, you can construct a magic square. So take the letter associated with Jupiter, Dal, which has the numerical value of 4. Thus, you make a 4x4 four four magic square, where the numbers in any straight line add up to the same number whichever direction you count, like I said before. Then you write the letter itself, Dal, 35 times, which is the numerical value of the letter Dal when written out as it is pronounced, using Dal, Aleph, and Lam around the magic square. You can also write various names of God that include that letter, such as Al-Wadud in this case, the loving. You then inscribe this talismanic symbol when the moon is in a good and fortunate mansion in the sky, on a parchment or an iron object or any object really that you can carry with you or that you can hang over your door and similar things. You can also write it out with ink, then wash off that ink with water and drink the water. Thus, one has harnessed the fortunate powers of Jupiter by using the intricate thread of correspondences, from the sphere of Jupiter to the letter associated with that sphere to the numerical value of that letter to the names of God that include that letter, and so on. You see there is a connection between all these different aspects, as, as well as the lunar mansion connected to these various things. It, it's all connected. According to the Shams, this can be used for spiritual benefit, but also for more worldly concerns. It instructs on how these things can be used to get people to like you, including getting women to be attracted to you, of course, to cure a fever or a scorpion sting, and even some of the more nefarious things, such as destroying your enemies, although the author also tends to discourage people from doing these things, saying things like, you know, here is how you destroy your enemy, but just remember that all these actions will be judged on the day of judgment. So he gives instructions, but also is like, you probably shouldn't be doing this stuff. For example, then, if you have a fever, then do this. And again, I'm quoting here, quote, If you write it, then wash off the ink with water and give the water to an ill person to drink, 
that person will be protected from fever. If you get stung by a scorpion, quote again, write them upon a piece of copper, then heat the copper in a fire. This protects against the scorpion's sting. This must be written while the moon is in Scorpio and in an unfortunate astrological aspect with Mars. Then, after the seal has been constructed, dip it in water and drink the water. And even if your intentions are less noble and you want personal benefit, quote, you may also write it in a piece of yellow silk. Do this while the moon is in Cancer, its domicile, or else in the house of Jupiter and secure from any unfortunate aspects with Jupiter. Any pleasant smelling incense may be burned. If you do that and carry it with you, you shall accomplish all your goals and attain what you want from kings, judges, and officials. Women will also love you. Very important, obligatory part there at the end. These are just some examples to show you how this text works and describes these practices. If you want to invoke Saturn, rather, which is associated with other effects, you do the same, but instead with the letter G, which is a letter that is associated with Saturn. This letter has the numerical value of 3, so in this case you make a 3 by 3 magic square. You write the, the, the letter Jim and you write out the letter Jim with the three letters, or Jim, uh, Ya, and Meme, and you write letters of, or names of God using that letter, and so the whole process. But instead, uh, all the aspects have changed because of the different correspondences in the case of Saturn rather than Jupiter. The Sufi orientation of this book becomes clearest when it discusses the very strong powers of the divine names. All the names of God have powers and can be vocally recited or written down to have different effects. Ar-Rahman, the merciful, has effects that correspond to the attribute of mercy. As-Salam, the giver of peace, can be helpful to end conflict, and so on. The name Allah is the most powerful of the names since it encompasses them all. Although there is also talk about a secret greatest name of God, Ismail Azam, a hidden name supposedly composed of 73 letters that is known only to the prophets. Just knowing a few letters of this name is said to give the person the ability to perform miracles, and it is on account of knowing this secret name that figures like Jesus were able to raise the dead. I'm going to quote here again, quote, through these names, Jesus used to raise the dead and cure the blind and the lepers. These names are written in the heavens. Phrases can have similar effects, especially the phrase Bismillahirrahmanirrahim, which has a whole chapter of the book dedicated to its powers. This phrase, which means in the name of God, the most merciful and compassionate, begins every surah of the Quran except for one, and is recited by Muslims before any major task, such as holding a speech, for example. This chapter on the Bismillah explains that it is one of the most powerful sentences in existence. It includes three names of God and is the very first line in the Quran. The Shams al-Ma'arif mentions a tradition where all of reality is said to be contained in the Quran. The entire Quran, in turn, is contained in the first chapter, Al-Fatiha. The entire Al-Fatiha is contained in the opening sentence, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim, and the entire Bismillah is contained in the letter Ba. Even more so, the entire Ba is then contained in the dot underneath the letter. This dot thus contains the whole Quran and metaphorically the whole universe. It is the point from which the entire book of God is then written, the point from which the vast threads of the universe are sewn. It is really breathtaking stuff.
This phrase, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim, brings luck when just saying it, but it can also be used as a kind of talisman. Writing the phrase on an object or washing it off with water and all these things that we've already mentioned also have these incredibly powerful occult effects. I'm quoting again, quote, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim was written across Adam's forehead 500 years before he was created. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim was inscribed on Moses' staff in Syriac. Had it not been, it would not have parted the sea. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim was inscribed on Jesus' tongue when he spoke in the cradle. He used to speak it when raising the dead who sprung back to life through the permission of God. And Bismillahirrahmanirrahim was engraved upon Solomon's ring. And for some more particular examples, quote, Reciting it before sleeping 121 times will draw down divine protection. God will protect you from Satan, theft, and sudden death. All misfortunes shall be averted. Or, quote, If it, the Bismillah, is written on a paper 101 times and buried on a farm, the crops will be fruitful and will be protected from pestilence and danger. As you can tell, the book is pretty pious in a way. It focuses primarily on God, uh, his names, the Quran, and the letters that make it up. And everything in the book is somehow connected to these very sort of religious and Islamic themes. Of course, as we saw, all of these things receive esoteric interpretations and readings. All aspects have connections to some angelic concept or letter or planetary sphere and that kind of thing. Even as we get into topics that are a little more dark, you could say, these themes remain as they are the glue that really keeps it all together throughout the book. After all, the book does describe how one can summon the good jinn to do one's bidding, and this is done primarily through using the bismillah, or Quranic verses, to call upon these hidden forces. Buni, if he is the author of these sections, cautions against doing these things carelessly without proper protection from God, since one can, for example, accidentally call upon an evil jinn or something. As we saw in an earlier episode about jinn, they can be both good and evil. They aren't exclusively evil as some people may think, and so uh, all these practices are aimed at uh, summoning uh, the good jinn through the power of God, but Albuni also cautions that one must be very careful with this uh, because one can perhaps accidentally call upon an evil jinn that will bring you misfortune and these kinds of things. And so you need to be very careful and protect yourself against those kinds of things through the protective power of God by saying the Bismillah or uh, writing the names of God and all these kinds of things. There's really so much stuff that this book contains that we can't go through here. It dives into the Ring of Solomon, the powerful ring given to this Islamic prophet that allowed him to control the jinn and many other impressive miraculous powers. It talks about the staff of Moses and all of the other topics that one has come to expect from the Islamic and occult tradition. You can kind of see why it has become the most famous book of occult sciences in the history of the Islamic world, as it covers such a broad range of topics, really any kind of topic in the occult sciences that you can think of, and does so pretty comprehensively, while also, of course, remaining firmly rooted in the vocabulary and, and cosmology of Islam and the Quran. This is indeed one of those things that set the Shams al-Ma'arif apart from that other most famous Islamic occult book, the Ghayat al-Hakim, or the Picatrix. 
namely that while the Raya or Picatrix is primarily a text on astrology and astral magic, being based on theories and traditions dedicated primarily to that and from a scientific perspective, the Shams al-Ma'arif is more visibly based on the Quran and on Sufi concepts. Some would even refer to it as more pious or outright Islamic, even though these terms are problematic of course. So how come this book has received such an infamous reputation today? As we saw in most of history, with a few exceptions like Ibn Taymiyyah and Ibn Khaldun, it, the book wasn't necessarily seen as uh, problematic in any major way, right? People studied it and, and used it in various ways. So what's going on today? Why is it that this book is so feared and infamous today? A development that seems to be one of the modern world that has appeared in the last uh, century or so. So what's going on here? Well, there are probably multiple answers to this question. In general, we have seen a sort of shift in the Islamic intellectual world in the last century or two, as well as a shift in the general scientific paradigm of the world, of course. We now live in a world that is much more materialistic than the context in which the book was written. We have certain ideals about what counts as quote-unquote real rational science and often deem anything else with terms like superstition. The concept of magic has had an especially rough time in this new paradigm. And this has affected the Islamic world too, of course. We saw in the 19th to 20th century the rise of modernistic movements within Islam that have since become very influential. One has tried to emphasize the rationality of true Islam and in that process rejected all aspects of the tradition that is deemed superstitious. It is this that has affected the role of Sufism from being a majority form of Islam basically to being relatively marginal today. Muslims have wanted to distance themselves from superstition to counter-arguments by Orientalist scholars, and thus the role of much of these things in the Islamic world have been increasingly looked down upon and downplayed. So this general trend is one factor. The scholar Liana Saif has also argued that during the 20th century, possibly connected to what we have said, there has been a quote, de-esotericization of Albuni's writings that the Shams al-Ma'arif and its contents have been stripped of their connection to Sufi cosmologies and metaphysics, which, as we saw earlier, is the very framework and thread upon which basically all aspects of the book is based. Removing Sufism from the Shams takes away all its connection with spiritual and religious practice. It takes the complex and intricate cosmology where everything fits together and strips it of its essential core. Grimoires and books of magic written by controversial occultists in Egypt in the 20th century, whose ideas became connected and traced directly to Albuni and Shams al-Ma'arif, also contributed to this general trend. For these reasons, and probably many others too, the Shams al-Ma'arif has become something very controversial today. In the Islamic world, it is often seen as a book of pure black magic, a cursed book that will bring you misfortune, a book that promotes devil worship. As I said in the beginning, it is often said that it is the most dangerous book in existence. On the other hand, we have other groups that have a relationship with the book that is a bit more akin or similar to how many in history have uh, studied this book, seeing it as a tool for spiritual uh, development and esoteric uh, Sufi ideas, but of course while keeping a very uh, strong emphasis on the fact that it needs to be studied with a proper teacher so that there can't be any misunderstanding of what the book teaches. In other words, it is a book that evokes many different kinds of emotions from different kinds of people people. Regardless, it is clear that there is a great interest in this book, and an increasing one it seems. 
Recently, the first English translation of a significant chunk of the book was made by Amina Inlos and J.M. Hamadi, published by Revelor Press, which has gained some attention and for good reason. It is also this translation that I've relied on for the most part in this episode. It is clear that the occult sciences has been a prominent part of the Islamic world historically, and in many places still today. Remember that we are using the word Islamicate rather than Islamic to avoid stating that these things are part of the Islamic religion per se. It is up to Muslim scholars and theologians to make statements on the normative status of the Shams al-Ma'arif and its contents in Islam, but we can at least be sure that these are ideas that have been widespread and popular in parts of the world dominated by the religion of Islam. It nuances our understanding of history, religion, and the occult, which is, after all, a good thing. And in understanding the history of the occult sciences, there are few texts as significant as the Shams al-Ma'arif and its author Ahmed al-Buni, or at least its attributed author Ahmed al-Buni. Now we hopefully have a better grasp of this fascinating topic, one of talismans, jinn, and magical words, all things fitting for the spooky month of October. I'll see you next time. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.